Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Father in heaven, we are debtors to you because you adopted us into your family. We who once served the father of lies have been rescued in order to serve the father of life. May the beautiful human practice of adopting children into a new earthly family serve as a powerful example of your nature, loving, kind, powerful, and wise. May any here who are not in your family have the spirit of adoption come into them so they can call you Father. O God, please use me this morning to communicate your truth to your people that we may all be conformed into the glorious image of our dear brother, our Savior, and our Lord. Jesus Christ, it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Let me begin by reading a story from an adoption agency. Being unable to have children was paralyzing. There were, or was there something we were doing wrong? Was it my fault? All around me were women getting pregnant and complaining about how unpleasant it is men joking about their pregnant wives. Every day thousands of babies are aborted, abandoned to death by people who take it so casually. Do they realize how much we longed to have a child? Over time, God impressed upon us the option of adopting. At first we resisted and persisted in our own strength, wanting to do it our way. But he is in charge, and ultimately we came to grips with that. After all, his will is perfect and our vision is limited. It took months and months of interviews, piles and piles of paperwork, thousands and thousands of dollars. There were many disappointments along the way when birth moms chose other adopted parents, costs became prohibitive, or certain countries abroad suddenly closed their doors. If we had known it would take three years, I wonder if we ever would have begun the journey. But God is faithful, and he saw us through every twist and turn and every up and down. Finally, it was last July, and we were eagerly awaiting the phone call. We'd been approved by the agency, and we'd met the birth mom. Her due date had, was a few days past, and with each passing hour, we wondered, is our baby here yet? Part of me wondered if the birth mom had changed her mind. I'd heard of that happening and braced myself. I didn't want to get my hopes up too much for the fear that they would be dashed. Then the phone rang. It was my mom wondering if we'd heard any news. No, we hadn't. I assured her we'd let her know as soon as we found out. Hours passed. Of course, we didn't just sit frozen on the couch staring at the phone. We went about our daily activities, but since it was a holiday weekend, we had a lot of time to piddle around at home. The phone rang again. It was a neighbor kid offering to mow the lawn for five bucks. I guess we'd been neglecting things a bit, and it showed. Ten minutes, but what seemed like ten years later, the phone rang again. It was a breathless adoption agency worker saying, He's here! He's here! At first, it didn't make sense. Who? Where? It was as if a pre-trib rapture prophet was proclaiming the Lord's return, but we'd been too holed up in our house to hear the trumpet blast. Then she implored, your son, at the hospital. Uh, within 20 minutes, we were at the hospital, and within two hours, we got to hold him. Words could not express our joy as we gazed into his squinty eyes. As we prayed over him, I was struck with God's words in Ephesians 5. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. 
My heart melted at the reality of God the Father's love for us and my new innate love for this precious little child. It cost thousands of dollars for us to adopt him, but it cost God much, much more to adopt his children. Well, many of us know similar adoption stories firsthand or from uh, close friends and relatives. Uh, Nearly every time I hear one of these stories, and I read many on the web, I'm moved to tears because adoption captures so so much of what is close to my heart and I'm sure what is close to God's heart. Uh, in the U.S. alone, there are about 130,000 adoptions every year and a similar number of older kids in foster care awaiting adoption and several multiples of that 130,000 number aborted every year. Uh, true religion, as James says in 127, cares deeply for the plight of earthly or- orphans and teaches us a lot about family. Uh, technically speaking, though, there are no spiritual orphans. We can't draw an exact parallel between earthly orphans and spiritual orphans because as uh, Jesus says in John 8, verse 42, uh, if God were your father, you would love me, but you are of your father the devil. So we all have a father. Uh, to use today's language, perhaps we could say that those whom God has predestined to his adoption are delinquent children being rescued out of abused homes, but they do have fathers. Uh, thankfully, this can happen at any age. Often infants are adopted, and that's certainly the norm, uh, but uh, toddlers all the way up to teenagers, uh, and uh, by God, uh, aged seniors, people on their deathbed are adopted. Uh, so while the vast majority of human adoptions happen with infants or within the first three years, God adopts people at all ages. He's also the ultimate international adoptive parent, as he adopts people from every tribe and nation across the earth. Another difference between human adoption and God's adoption is the factor of initiative. As some of you are familiar with, the process of initiating uh, adoption uh, with today's agencies is long and painful and slow and expensive. Uh, Birth parents have to be interviewed, all these background checks, and uh, these days they can be dismissed after a meeting with either the um, parents, the natural parents, or even if the child is old enough, by a meeting with the adoptee himself. But the situation is entirely different with God. Uh, He doesn't have to pass a review board. Uh, He doesn't have to get interviewed. He can adopt whomever and whenever he wants. Uh, The former parent, that is to say Satan, has no say in the matter. Satan may object and do everything he can to resist it, but ultimately that adoptive parent or the, um, quote, natural parent, if we draw that parallel, uh, their opinion, Satan's opinion, has no consequence with God. Uh, Another difference between the two, uh, making it a not exact parallel, it has to do with visitation rights. And this is where I think uh, the olden days of earthly adoption is a a better example for spiritual adoption. It used to be that uh, adoptions were mostly what we call closed adoptions. That is, records were sealed. The adoptee didn't necessarily know where he or she came from. Uh, The the donating parents could not contact the adopting family. And so there was a clean break from that previous father. These days, most adoptions, or at least many, are what we call open adoptions. So uh, there's the potential for either party to contact Uh, But again, as I say, we should be having a clean break from our father Satan when we're saved and adopted into God's God's family. We should not be dabbling in his trade, wanting to emulate our uh, former father. We shouldn't be hanging out with our siblings or having them in our life to the degree that we start to act like them or behave like them or aspire to know who they are. Instead, we should be wholly, completely consumed and dedicated to loving our new family and getting to know our new father. Well, I think in God's providence, he's made the issue of earthly adoption such a big one in today's society because, as I mentioned, it's vitally important to him and a great example of how he deals with his people. 
And since it's so important to God, it's obviously important to Paul uh, to the extent that he mentions it uh, three or four different places in Ephesians, as I mentioned in that story at the beginning, as well as in Galatians and uh, two different places in Romans, uh, the first of which we deal with here in Romans 8. So to get a better idea of this crucial significance uh, and what leads Paul to this therefore in Romans 8.12, we want to say, well, what, what's he alluding to? What's uh, before this? And certainly a good uh, section of that answer is the preceding verses of chapter 8. But I think for a fuller answer, it's better for us to rewind all the way back to Romans 5. Uh, and we'll run through quickly Romans 5, 6, and 7 to see the groundwork that Paul is laying for this middle section of Romans 8. So if you uh, flip back with me to Romans 5, and uh, I've got verses, I think, on your outline that you can follow up on later, and I'm going to take sections of those now, uh, beginning at verse 16. We're going to see this back and forth, this contrast that Paul is drawing in chapter 5 between death in Adam and life in Christ. He goes back and forth. It's as if he's narrating a boxing match or a tennis match, drawing this contrast over and over again, you know, pounding us over the head, as it were, to make sure we realize this difference. And indeed, these differences are real, and these differences are serious. So let's look. Uh, beginning at verse 16, he says, For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from the many offenses that Christ bore, that is, resulted in justification. And then a similar parallel in verse 17. By the one man's offense, death reigned, but much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life. Uh, similarly, in verse 18, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteousness, the, uh, act, the righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. And again, in verse 19, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And in 20, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And finally, verse 21, sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness. So we see here on one hand, in Adam's sin, man died. Judgment came from it, uh, resulting in condemnation. Death reigned. His followers are sinners under this reign of death. But on the other hand, in Christ, the gift of, gift of grace abounds to many. The free gift results in justification, and those who receive uh, this grace, this abundance of grace, and the gift of righteousness reign in life. So back and forth, we see that clear distinction being, being made between death in Adam and life in Christ. Well, this uh, same thread continues in chapter 6, where he contrasts being dead to sin with being alive to God. Uh, the Christian is dead to sin, as you see there in verse 2, uh, since he's been uh, buried and crucified with Christ. The uh, buried and crucifying in verses 4 and 6. So the conclusion is that Christ has freed us from sin, verse 7, and made us alive, verse 8, with Christ. So again, we're dead in Adam, but alive in Christ. But here, we're dead to sin and alive to God. Well, it all continues on further in chapter 7. And uh, we see as long as we're alive to the law, the law condemns us. It has dominion over us, to use his words. But since he just mentioned the fact that Christ, the Christian is dead to the law, they're dead through Christ's death, we're no longer condemned. And while the flesh serves the law of sin leading to death, the inward man serves the law of life. So a vast change has taken place. And this is why at the beginning of chapter 8, uh, Paul can say uh, one of those therefores. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. A profound change has taken place. Why? Because they, well, we do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Uh, the spirit of God is put in us, making us his children, putting to death the deeds of those flesh, as we'll get to momentarily. 
Well, it's no surprise that God or that Paul doesn't just stop here at the beginning of Romans 8, but continues it all the way through up to this section that we're going to focus on, 12 through 17. Uh, this contrast between flesh and spirit. One is death, one is life. He wants us to understand that living according to or being indebted to uh, the right thing is critical. We must not be living uh, according to or indebted to the flesh because it only leads to death. We must be uh, indebted to the spirit because that death is the same death of our forerunner Adam. It's the same condemnation of unrighteousness. We must follow in Christ and have his spirit in us. So if we're indebted to the spirit and we live, uh, we live a particular life. And this is the great focus of these passages. There's a number of implications that come from this life in the spirit. It's not just a one-time thing. Okay, move on. Uh, keep doing what you were doing. But there's some significant implications. And the first implication is holiness. In verse 14, uh, the spirit leads us to put to death the deeds of the body. Uh, elsewhere, and I'm quoting here or making a list from Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 and Galatians 5. He makes a list of what these deeds of the flesh are. And just to summarize a few of them, uh, self-seeking, whispering, backbiting, boasting, disobedience to parents, sexual immorality, covetousness, idolatry, drunkenness, extortion, envy, murder. And he says that those who commit such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are in the flesh indeed cannot please God, as he says in Romans 8.8. 8. Uh, these thoughts and actions are fatal and they must be stopped. And it's only through the agency of the spirit that we can stop these actions, that we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. So, um, but notice also that this work of the spirit doesn't just produce a particular label, Christian, that you wear on your forehead or a little lapel pin or something, nor a particular outward status of son, because as we saw, we're all sons of somebody. But it, it, it does give us a particular, a special sonship, and it gives us a particular label, a particular name, Christ's name, but it does more than just those externals. It gives us uh, that position, that status that results in these actions of holiness. Paul, in effect, I think is saying the same thing here that John does in 1 John 2, 3. And this is a familiar verse, you know. Now, by this, we know that we love Jesus if we keep his commandments. So it's keeping the commandments whereby we put to death the deeds of the flesh, and those are the result of the spirit that is in us. So to claim that we're Christ's own, but to continue in these deeds of the flesh is to be uh, a contradiction, uh, to be a hypocrite, or, or worse yet, to be a liar. Uh, he says we deceive ourselves if we think we're Christians, yet we hold on to these secret sins and tenaciously resist letting them go. But if the spirit is at work, the spirit, as he uh, continues here, bears witness with our spirit, bringing these sins to the surface, leading us to repentance, leading us to a change of course that leads us in this course of holiness, whereby we live out the life of the inner man, to use Paul's words, renewed by God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, the second implication after this inward holiness that comes about is uh, fellowship, renewed fellowship. And I'm speaking here both of fellowship with God as well as fellowship with other people, fellow believers. Uh, the spirit in us is a spirit of adoption that moves us to cry out to God as our father, the Abba father wording he uses here. Uh, some commentators have said that Abba means daddy, a real casual, but from what I've uh, studied, it's actually just a different language. It's Aramaic for father. So he's, he's speaking, you know, father, father, this crying out, this longing. So to simply know that God exists gets us nowhere. As it said elsewhere, even the demons acknowledge this. But by the spirit of adoption, we know from the inside, and in effect from the inside out, that God is our Father. And we can cry out to him. That great gulf that existed prior uh, because of our sin has been bridged. We're no longer aliens and foreigners outside of the camp of Israel, outside of the household of faith, but we are 
full-fledged fellow members of God's household. And so realizing this relationship is going to have a profound effect on our lives. It's not just something like, oh, that's pretty neat. God's my father, and I can cry out to him if I feel like it, but it's not that big of a deal. It should have a day-to-day, moment-by-moment, profound effect on our lives. Uh, Likely your children are being trained to respect all adults, not just your parents, I'm sure. So uh, your parents would likely be heartbroken if you were to be exactly the same towards them as to any other adult. They might be jealous. Uh, similarly, if you were you know, extra lovey-dovey with that neighbor down the block and just kind of casual or, or maybe at least respectful to them, they'd wonder, is there some detachment going on here? And that's the same with God. God is a jealous God. He wants to be the sole, the only, no competitors object of our affection. We can't divide our intimacy with him. He also doesn't want us to be you know, plain, matter-of-fact, kind of official with him, but to have an intimacy. Uh, and this intimacy that comes by knowing on a deep, profound level that he's our father Uh, understanding that we've been adopted by him is what enables us, as Paul says, to cry out to him, Abba, Father. It's not just a, okay, yes, sir, God, hello, God, but uh, an Abba, Father, um, as Paul, or uh, I'm sorry, David so often cries out in the Psalms, and to quote Psalm 63, my soul yearns for you as in a dry and thirsty land. I look for you to see your power and your glory. My lips praise you. That's the type of action that comes from a father relationship as opposed to a uh, yes, sir, you know, just tell me what to do and I'll, I'll do it. I hope I don't want to get in trouble. That's not the way we should be interacting with God our Father. But further, uh, we're full-fledged sons. So in addition to having God as the Father, uh, we're full-fledged members of his family. We're not second-rate heirs. As Paul says, we're children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. It's not a subservient level. It's a, a full-fledged uh, and adoptive children, you know, even today, and this is where Earthly adoption is a good example. Have, have full inheritance privileges. Just because you're adopted versus a naturally born child in your family doesn't mean that you have any lower legal standing than those natural born children. So we're all on an equal level. That's pretty profound to think that uh, Christ, the naturally born, as it were, uh, son of God, uh, is on an equal inheritance level as we are once we're adopted into his family. So, and, and all of us in our family, whether we have different backgrounds, and this is why Paul uh, pushes so hard against having special burdens being put on Gentile believers, as Pastor Kaiser's been teaching in Acts, is uh, circumcision uh, should not be a distinguishing point. Uh, we should not have a Jew versus Gentile status thing. And so it's the same thing today. And why uh, Paul says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither uh, male or female, we're all one before uh, God. We all have an equal standing as fellow heirs with God. Well, if the the mere fact that we're all fellow heirs, we all have Jesus with our brother, we all have the same spiritual father, God, means that we here as Christians are all siblings in the household of faith. And uh, here in this church, we encourage family unity, right? We want to be a family-integrated church. And while our culture all too often seeks to destroy family unity and allegiance of members within that family, uh, we try and we know that uh, God cares deeply about building up that integration of the family. All too often, men's allegiances are turned made to their careers or to uh, professional sports idols. Uh, women's allegiances are turned towards a uh, career or certain social groups they might engage with outside the family. And children's uh, allegiances are turned towards peer groups or um, certain fads, trends, whatever it might be. But to protect against these disintegrating forces, God has said that we should be intimately involved in each other's lives. And a product of that is that by working together in educational and spiritual growth and building those ties, we have a family that has enlarged hearts 
from one another. And that's all our goal, is to care about the brethren. And the same exact thing is true, uh, taking that microcosm of the earthly family out to our spiritual family. We should be taking an active interest in the physical as well as spiritual needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, We should be crying when they cry and rejoicing when they rejoice. Only by doing that can we bear each other's burdens and know what their strengths and fears and trials and longings and weaknesses are. Uh, When conflict arises, I also wonder if we aim for peace rather than being like the bullying older brother who's just trying to get their way or perhaps a sullying younger brother who just wants to pout in the corner and get the attention. So there's same parallels when we move this into the realm of our spiritual family that we should be longing for reconciliation, be be willing to confront each other and be confronted uh, as we all press forward towards the goal. And I think it's at this very point that the evil one does creep in. Uh, There's room to create create dissension here. Uh, He raised doubts. Uh, How do we know for sure that we're in God's family? Uh, He'll raise uh, division. Uh, How do we know that we should actually care and may stick our neck out for the brethren in the church? Uh, It's not like we have a family photo or a a footprint in ink on a little piece of paper we got at the hospital that tells us, yep, you really are in this family. We can rely on external baptism certificate, but uh, uh, Satan can work in our minds these questionings, these wonderings. Am I really a Christian? Am I really to care about my brethren? But thankfully in this text, Paul uh, elaborates for us, albeit briefly, uh, some profound ways in which we can really be sure we should not doubt Um, though we should be checking. So let me get into that. Uh, And I think there's both an inner and an outer witness. So we're going to start with the inner witness first, where Paul says that the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children and joint heirs. That's verse 16 and 17. Uh, So the spirit is working inside of us. Elsewhere, it's in Ephesians 1.14, he says that uh, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, that's uh, a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the perfect possession. So we have that in us. It's, it's not about something we do to get saved, as you're all aware. It's about that promise of the Holy Spirit. And God keeps his promises. Uh, this week on tour uh, with a young group was from Florida, a Christian school, I was a little disappointed in the apparent lack of Christian uh, lives that these kids were living. And, and at the end, I asked them, it was the final morning devotion. I wanted to be sure they knew what the gospel was. So we went through a little question and answer trying to draw it out of this very text. I decided to do devotions from Romans 18 just so I could practice for you all. But I uh, wanted to be sure they realized it's not about a profession of faith I made at some youth camp when I was six, and it's not about some outward action I did that I can rest on, but it's about the inward work of God. It's about that inward work of the Holy Spirit. It's about that inner testimony with our spirit that bears witness and makes us sure that we are saved. Well, there's also an outer witness, And it's the spirit-wrought sanctification that provides clear witness. If we're not putting to death the deeds of the flesh that Paul uh, talks about earlier, we actually should have cause to wonder if, in fact, we are saved. Because if we are uh, dwelling on things that aren't of the spirit, if we are fleshly-minded, if we're still enjoying and delighting in the uh, things of the flesh, that's a direct contrast with what the spirit produces because it should be making us put to death the deeds of the flesh. It should be making us dwell on the things of the spirit. It should make us have renewed minds. Uh, The other, uh, besides our holy living as an outward testimony, I think there's one more um, inward, I'm sorry, uh, outer testimony. Uh, It's our fellowship, going back to the fellowship with God and the fellowship with believers. 
Uh, if we have the Spirit in us, if we really are uh, children of God, and if, as he says here, we are now enabled to cry out to God, Abba, Father, are we? Uh, are we engaging in really deep, intimate, longing prayer, as David did in that psalm that I read? Are we uh, daily delighting in his forgiveness, uh, being kind and uh, tender-hearted? Are we uh, really longing for God's mercy in our lives and rejoicing in it, not questioning whether it's there, but rejoicing that he is faithful to forgive our sins? Uh, conversely, if we're disinterested in prayer and uh, have other priorities, if we presume upon his forgiveness and we wantonly sin, there's question to wonder uh, whether, why, whether we really have his spirit in us. And another part of fellowship being the fellowship with believers, our brothers and sisters in the faith. Uh, because if we are long-suffering, if we have kind and gentle hearts towards our brethren, if we care enough about their sin to point things out to them and care enough about our own sin to receive that pointing out directed at us, the, the finger coming back, then uh, we are manifesting that love of the brethren. We are being good members of the household of faith. But conversely, if we're detached and don't really care about the brethren's needs, if we're really standoffish and defensive when people uh, lovingly bring things to our attention, we're not being good brothers and sisters. And there's cause to wonder, perhaps, if you're not. But we should, again, rest in this inward work of the Holy Spirit, this inward testimony, and uh, be giving evidence of much outward proof uh, through our holiness, through the sanctification. Well, to frame it a, a, another way, uh, as in your outlines I have there, the inward, upward, and outward is a helpful way to look at how this adoption really affects our lives. So to begin with the upwardly, Adoption affects us, as I said, through sanctification. This is the putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Uh, we should be putting on, or sorry, putting away the old man and putting on the new man. We should be getting rid of these, rid of these deceitful lusts, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, and uh, working out this true righteousness and holiness. And he also says that these holiness uh, effect comes about through certain actions. It's not just sitting back and waiting for this. And there's a whole list he goes through in Ephesians 4, and in 1 Timothy 8 and 9, I picked a few. Uh, these specific actions of telling the truth instead of lying, resolving conflict quickly and graciously rather than letting sinful anger develop, uh, working diligently rather than stealing, praying with confidence rather than with doubt, dressing in modest apparel rather than boastfully or flamboyantly, putting away bitterness and evil speaking, and instead replacing it with that kindness and tenderheartedness. So I'm sure as you go through Scripture, you've seen many places where God says, oh, don't do this, do this to replace it. And those are the outward actions of sanctification that uh, testify to the inward work um, that God is doing in us. All of these, uh, we must remember, flow from the inward work of the Spirit, not something that we can generate ourselves. Well, the second part there, upwardly, uh, what is the upward implication of adoption? And this is that fellowship, a renewed and a restored uh, fellowship with God. Because, and we must remember this, and this is a real key thing I want to impress upon this tour group this past week, is that when you're outside of God's family, he has wrath against you. He has a holy anger that is serious and must be taken seriously. But for those who are in his family, we have been brought into a close fellowship. We are not enemies and we are foreign, not, no longer foreigners. We're citizens. We're members of the household of faith. We're not on the outside wondering what is happening on the inside. As uh, Jesus said there in, in John 8, oh, there's the risk of being of your father the devil, but we no longer are. He has snatched us away from that destructive home and renewed our hearts. And we can trust in that and have deep, intimate fellowship with him. And God... Uh, uh, 
Well, it's in John uh, 17 where Jesus prayed for that fellowship, uh, where he said it's uh, 1720 to 21. I do not pray for these disciples alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. So that intercessory prayer for us to have a oneness with God. And he continues, and this connects to the outward, uh, he continues uh, that same prayer that we would have fellowship among each other. And it's in verse 22 of chapter 17 in John. The glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. So he prays for our oneness with God and then he prays for our oneness with each other. And this is the, uh, the building of the holy temple, the members of the household of faith coming together with true holiness. Because as joint heirs with Christ, we're joint heirs with the others who are joint heirs with Christ, meaning that all of us believers are joint heirs together. And uh, we should take this seriously, um, looking for the manifestation of God's wisdom. Because he says, and I remember when Audrey and I were memorizing Ephesians two years ago, and unfortunately we've let it lapse, but I was just dumbfounded reading in Ephesians 3.10 where he says that it's going to be the church that is going to manifest God's wisdom. That is going to be the light in the world that shows the disbelieving people out there what a difference God makes. And if we are not taking seriously our own holiness personally and the collective holiness of this church, we are not moving forward to show God's wisdom. So we do want to take it seriously and, and not just try to have peace, that kind of fake peace of Jeremiah's day where people just want to set the issue aside and don't worry about it. It's controversial, you know, doctrine divides and uh, you know, spouting out the verse about the log and the speck. Well, the purpose is to get the speck out of your eye or the log out of your eye so then you can be faithful and go talk about those specks. We shouldn't just ignore it. Because um, Paul does say that collectively we are being built together for a holy temple in the Lord and that every part of that temple must be purified or else you know, if one little speck of dirtiness remains, the whole thing is corrupted and we're longing for that day when the bride will be holy and spotless and presented to her husband, our Lord Christ Jesus. Well, all of this to say that adoption is vitally important. It's not just a neat little theological concept, something you check off on the list in your systematic theology book, but it paints a powerful uh, picture of relationships. And when human parents adopt a child, they act toward that son or daughter completely differently than they do uh, if they didn't know the kid. And that son or daughter acts completely differently towards this parent. They wouldn't even know each other if it wasn't for the adoption. And it's a similar thing with us. We would not be knowing God intimately if it wasn't for this adoption. And as I already mentioned, it's a, it's a legal thing too. It's not just relational, but there is a legal privilege. And this is a really profound thing to think that we have all the legal privileges that Jesus does having been adopted into our family. That is huge and that is vast. So to sum it up, first of all, adoption brings us into God's family and brings us into fellowship with us, with him, rescuing us from what otherwise would have been certain death. And this is something we need to daily remind ourselves and delight in, a beautiful thing that he's done for us. And then the second thing is that being in his family leads to personal holiness. Everything we do in every moment of every day should contribute to putting to death those deeds of the flesh and growing in godliness. And third, being in his family means uh, that we have a whole host of very special siblings. Christ, our older brother, preeminently, and then all of the other members of household of faith, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, our fellow heirs with Christ. And this involves knowing what their burdens are, we don't know what they are. We can't carry them. We can't pray for them. It involves being receptive to feedback, uh, seeing our blind spots, 
and it involves being daring enough and loving enough to mention them to others. Let me finish uh, with another post I read at an adoption website that told the story of a father who has one uh, natural-born child and then two adopted children who are of a different race. And uh, the story took place when he was holding one of those adopted children, and a woman asked him, are you going to tell him he's adopted? And the dad was like, well, I actually think it's going to be a little obvious, you know, a different skin color, which uh, well uh, reinforces the point that we should realize uh, or not take it for granted that we're in this family. Like, oh, I've always been here, not a big deal. But realize we are a little different than God and to appreciate our adoption. But he went on to say this, and I'll quote. And after he answered here, yeah, I will tell them. He says, I'm convinced that fewer questions like this one would be asked if we thought of heavenly adoption before we thought of earthly adoption. Why? Because for Christians, adoption is central to what defines us. The Apostle Paul is very clear. We are God's children through adoption. God is an adoptive father. Jesus, our elder brother, is God the Father's eternal, only begotten, natural son. We believers are his children through adoption, and this identity is fundamental to who we are. As adopted children, we enjoy all the rights and privileges of the relationship that God the Father enjoys with his eternal son. This is an amazing reality and eternal privilege. We will forever be God's children through adoption. So let us never forget this position before, this position with God, we didn't arrive here by good luck. We didn't arrive here because we deserved it, but because God loved us, he chose us, and he made us his children. It's a tremendous privilege and a tremendous responsibility. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are in awe that you would cast your love upon us and determine to adopt us into your family. You've given us an extraordinary position as members of your family. You've given us a tremendous gift in your spirit to make us holy and you have restored the relationship between yourself and each of us that was once broken. You've placed us in a family of other adoptees in order that we would grow up into our head, Christ, and show forth your wisdom and your greatness to a lost, uh, a dead world that needs your life. Please, O oh God, may it be so. May the good work which you've begun in each one of us come to full fruition. May we put to death these deeds of the flesh, our pride, our vanity, our self-righteousness and many other sins we engage in and instead put on the new man. May we speak the truth in love to our neighbor to be messengers of blessing so that they will see their blind spots and grow in godliness. May we receive our brothers and sisters' admonitions as coming from you and from our, our good. Father, may each of us yearn for you and cry out to you out of the depths of our soul, asking for your forgiveness and delighting in your mercy. We look forward to your church being a magnificent city set on a hill, giving a beautiful light for all the world to see. This I ask for each person here in the name of Jesus. Amen.